0: Well, let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter two, as we continue our study through Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 24. For the sake of context, let us uh, consider verses 22 and following through verse 32. Listen to the reading of God's word. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that we are all witnesses. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. As we begin this morning, let me connect some important dots for us and I will do so by drawing your attention once again to the overall context of acts chapter two. What is the main event being described for us in acts chapter two? Can anybody remember? Please tell me. You can't remember. It is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, also known as Pentecost. And it is recorded for us in chapter two, verses one through 13. Then in acts chapter two, verses 14 through 36, The apostle Peter launches into his very first sermon in which he explains the meaning of those events of Pentecost. Now, let me then try to connect the dots for you. Notice how the apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit spoke of Pentecost within the context of both Old Testament prophecy and of Christ. Old Testament prophecy and Christ in the first part of his sermon verses 14 through 21, Peter connects the outpouring of the spirit to the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, who lived 800 years before the events actually took place. And then immediately in verse 22 through 36, Peter connects Pentecost, the coming of the spirit directly to Christ Jesus. But notice how he does it. In verses 22 and 23, Peter makes a connection between Pentecost and the death of Jesus. We saw that last week. In our verses for this morning, 24 through 32, Peter is connecting Pentecost to the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, in verses 33, Through 36, Peter will connect Pentecost to what? Can anybody tell me? I'll give you a clue in verse 33. We have the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and now the exaltation of Jesus, all of which is leading up to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I have said it many times by now that verse 36 is the central point of the entire sermon. And in a real sense, if you think about it, it is the central point of the Christian life. If you think about it, the Christian life is about both believing that Jesus is Lord and Christ and living in submission to that very truth. The Christian life, as I have said repeatedly is about the ongoing interplay between rejoicing in the indicatives and walking in the imperatives. And when the Bible says that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, it means two things. We must believe it and we must live accordingly. Now, Please allow me to address something that could be on your mind this morning, especially those of you who are newer to the faith, or maybe you are not even in the faith. You maybe are exploring the claims of Christianity. It is possible that some of you are thinking this What is the point of all this? I don't get it. All this talk about Jesus, his death, his resurrection, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. All of that sounds good, but it seems so detached from real life. Not only that, but you guys keep coming back Sunday after Sunday for a little more of the same. Here's why. Let me see if I can illustrate this. A boat in the middle of a storm will only be as steady as the anchor that holds it in place a building in the middle of an earthquake will only be as solid as the foundation upon it was built likewise a life in the middle of a fallen and unpredictable world will only be as strong as the realities that shape it So what do we do here every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? We remind ourselves of the realities that can never and will never change. A boat without a steady anchor will crush against the rocks. A building without a solid foundation will collapse under its own weight. So, too, a life that does not find steadiness and solidity in unchanging, unmovable realities is bound to crush and collapse, if not in this life, then in the next. Therefore, we Christians, what do we do every Sunday? We look to Christ. Sunday after Sunday, we continue to look to Christ. You know why? Because He never changes. Can you tell me, is there anything in your life that can make the same claim? Think of anything in your life, your job, your career, your family, your money, your finances, your bank account. Can you tell me, is there anything in your life that can make the same claim that it will never change? There's only one that never changes. His name is Christ Jesus. And so we come here to remind ourselves that our identity is not bound to the president of a nation or Facebook or a political party or some social trend, but to Christ and to him alone. For he's the only one who never changes. Even your life will end at some point. Everything in life is in constant motion. Everything in life is constantly changing. Jesus is the only one who remains forever the same. You, my friend, you need Christ. And today I want to convince you of that. There's only one point. I want you to see Christ as the one you need the most. And what better place to do that than by looking at the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the theme running through verses 24 through 32. Notice how the section naturally opens in verse 24 with the words, God raised him up. And the section naturally closes in verse 32 with the words, this Jesus God, what raised up. We are entering then the inexhaustible and supremely beautiful realm of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, if you're following your notes, the glorious fact, let me give you the glorious fact. Verse 24, God raised him up. Here is one of the most glorious Indicatives of the entire Bible. In this verse, Peter is simply pointing out a fact, a truth, an objective reality. God raised Jesus up. Now, let us briefly remind ourselves of the context. In the previous verses, Peter spoke of whom? Who is the center? Who is the object of Peter's words? Jesus of Nazareth. And as we saw last Sunday, this Jesus was undoubtedly. A man like you and like me, this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Therefore, in the previous verses, we have the undeniable proof that the one we are speaking of in verse 24 is the same person, namely this Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man, the racing up is connected to this Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was crucified and killed. So who is the object of the resurrection? Whom did God raise? Him, meaning Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Does that matter? It matters so much. I remember how in my younger years, I used to believe that Jesus was raised, but only spiritually. I used to think of the resurrected Jesus as a type of floating ghost, the kind that glides over the floor. And that is not an uncommon mistake or misunderstanding of the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, not that very long ago in this very church, after one of the services, someone came to me and they they told me Jesus was only raised spiritually. It is a very common misunderstanding, but in this verse, Peter makes it very clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the one spoken of. Therefore, a man, Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead. Listen, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and it is the central event of the Christian faith. Because in the resurrection of Jesus, we are witnessing the resurrection of an actual human being, a man like you and like me who underwent death on a cross was buried in a tomb and subsequently rose from the grave. And he did this as a human being like you and like me. Why does that matter? It matters for the following reason. The apostle Paul said in first Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. Why does Paul call the resurrection of Jesus? The first fruits. Well, he's using harvest language in the harvest The farmer begins to gather the fruit of his labor that the land has yielded. The first fruits are massively important because they represent nothing less than the entire crops. They are called the first fruits because the farmer knows that more is coming. Why is then the resurrection of Jesus called the first fruits? Because the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the man means more resurrections are coming. More resurrections are coming. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the man stands as the prototype for the resurrection of all believers. What types of resurrection? Well, resurrection like that of Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrection of the body, the physical resurrection from the grave. We're talking about physical resurrections. Why do we have this hope? Because God raised the body of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the glorious fact. God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the grave. Having considered the the fact now, let me give you the astonishing description, the astonishing description, continuing in verse 24. Now Peter is going to describe what he means. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. After stating the fact of the resurrection, Peter now begins to give a more detailed description of the resurrection with the words, losing the pangs of death. What does the word pain mean? Well, in a strict sense, that word refers to sharp pain or painful emotion. But in the biblical sense, it is more specific than that. In fact, it is quite illuminating to know the meaning of the word pain. The ladies in this room, especially those who have been pregnant, will appreciate it. Pangs refers to the agony brought about by birth pains. Is it really painful ladies? Basically, this is one of those illustrations I cannot relate to. Although I often tell my wife that I understand what women go through during the birth of a child because I get occasional headaches. (laughs) She never, never agrees with me for some reason. She doesn't like, I like it when I use that comparison. So I often endure the headaches alone (laughs) with no compassion. But that is the word. It is a very instructive word for it reveals to us the agony of death that was brought upon our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in the last hours of his life, as he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, we see the Lord Jesus sweating drops of blood and even asking the father if it was possible for the cup of upcoming death to pass from him. And that is the picture being placed upon our minds. The pangs of death that were upon Christ were like the pains of childbirth. If you think about it, the moments leading up to the birth of a child are often agonizing especially in times of the past where there was no help from epidurals. Birth was always associated with pain, agony, and suffering. But then something amazing happens, right? The child is born and the moment goes from agony to joy, from pain to contentment. And the mother who just moments ago was in agonizing pain looks upon the face of her newborn child and all the pain is done away with. Likewise, our Lord Jesus endured the pain, went through the agony, placed himself under the curse of sin, which is what? Death. Went to the cross. It was painful, it was agonizing, there was much suffering, but then something amazing happened. Those pangs of death gave way to life. And not only life, but life everlasting. Having gone through unspeakable sorrow and suffering as the Lord Jesus, that man from Nazareth willingly goes to the cross and died under the wrath of the father for the sins of the world. Jesus breaks forth from the tomb with unstoppable force because the pangs of death were loosened. Now consider the following illustration found in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for how many days when Jesus showed up? Four days. So the process of decomposition had already started. So Jesus comes and he gives him life. Jesus commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. Now, notice with me that Lazarus didn't have the ability to hear, see, walk, or respond. Why? Well, he was dead. He was dead. All those things were given to Lazarus in the command itself because the power is in the word, but that's a a conversation for another time. Jesus commands Lazarus to come out. And what does Lazarus do? He comes out and then Jesus gave another command as Lazarus comes out of the tomb, probably looking like a mummy. Jesus says unbind him unbind him. That word is the same word. Peter uses here to explain in acts chapter two, what happened to the pangs of death as Jesus laid in the tomb, God unbounded him. It is as though, God simply removed death off of the body of Jesus. Here was the father saying, beloved son, your work is done. I am well pleased. Justice has been satisfied. The sins of my people have been paid for. Therefore death Will never touch you again. In that moment, God Himself tells Death, Get your hands off of my son. Death, you're dead. This explains why the apostle Paul, Paul bursted forth in praise when he exclaimed death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Allow me to respectfully paraphrase Paul death. Is that the best you can do? Is that the best you can do? Well, if that is the best you can do, then the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead can only mean one thing. Death. You are rendered useless and ineffective. There's nothing more you can do. Jesus was unbounded from death itself. And then Peter adds these magnificent words. The Lord Jesus broke forth from the tomb because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This doesn't happen to me very often, but as I was thinking about the impossibility of Jesus staying dead, as I was reflecting on the absoluteness of that language, that classic scene from the Hulk came to mind. I grew up watching the Hulk. I'm not ashamed. And by that, by that, I mean the original series from the seventies and the eighties. You know, the classic scene, don't you? As the main character was placed under different types of threats out came the Hulk, this massively big, muscular and green for whatever reason, monster. But every time that happened, the camera work was impressive. They zeroed in on his clothes. Do you remember that you see that was a very important part of the entire show because what happened to the clothes conveyed the unmistakable unstoppable power of the Hulk. It was a critical point in the whole series. His transformation was such that his jeans, his shirt, and even his shoes would simply rip open to give way to the power that was clearly shown in the muscles of the Hulk. Whatever the main character was wearing that day had to give way, had to let the power simply be released. There was nothing those jeans and shirts could do to keep the Hulk from full disclosure. When the Hulk showed up, the Hulk showed up and it was not possible for those clothes to conceal him any longer. Our text says that it was not possible for death to hold Jesus down. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that it was difficult for death to hold him down. It doesn't say that it was a struggle for death to hold him down. The language is absolute. It was not possible for death to hold him down. Why? Because God is, listen to this. God is by definition Indestructible life. Indestructible life. Life is what God is. In technical terms, theologians have referred to this as God being pure actuality, unbounded being, perfect existence. God is life itself. God cannot be destroyed by death because, by definition, God is life. So for instance, in going back to the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11, before God performed his miracles, what did Jesus tell Mary and Martha? Let me remind you by telling you what Jesus didn't say. I like doing that. I don't know why. Jesus didn't say, I can give Lazarus resurrection and life. Or I can cause Lazarus to be raised to life. He didn't say that. Rather, Jesus said something much, much greater, mind-blowing indeed. As he conversed with Mary and Martha, as he got ready to perform one of the greatest miracles ever performed, Jesus simply said, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I came granted. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Since this is what he is, then death can only be momentary, but never permanent. As the book of Hebrews says, Jesus tasted death for everyone. He tasted death for everyone. Or as the song says, he drank the bitter cup reserved for me, but it was for a moment. It was only for a moment. He underwent death only so he could destroy it by coming back to life. Remember Genesis 315? How many of you remember Genesis 315? Not very many of you. Genesis 315. This is the bruising of the heel God spoke of. He was bruised for our transgressions. But you know what? It was just the bruise. He went through suffering, yet it was only for a moment. Death could not hold him. And so now Peter will ground all his words upon the ancient prophecy. The ancient prophecy. Consider with me verse 25 through 28. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Where do we find those verses? Well, they were panned by David in Psalm 16 verses A through 11. Now in a basic sense, These words do belong to David, correct? They belong to David. He wrote them. And in a real sense, David penned these words in faith. There is also a sense in which all Christians can say with David that because of God, we are not shaken. That our hearts are glad, that our tongues rejoice, and that God has made known to us the path of life, and that there is gladness in his presence. Amen? We can say that. But in a prophetic way, when David penned these words, we could say that the one speaking was the Lord Jesus Christ. So this psalm is basically an intra-Trinitarian conversation. In here, we see the pre-incarnate son of God speaking to his father about the plan to be fulfilled at the time of the incarnation. And so, as the son takes on human flesh and becomes a man in order to die for the sins of his people, he does so knowing that his father will not abandon him to Sheol. What is Sheol? Well, it's another way of speaking of the realm of the dead. Sheol is the Hebrew idea of death. God used David to pen this Psalm, Psalm 16, to reveal to us the eternal Trinitarian plan. The son will die as a man, but his body will not see corruption, meaning before decomposition begins. His body will be raised and it is all about Christ. But how do we know this for sure? Because of my my next point, the apostolic interpretation, the apostolic interpretation, consider with me verses 29 through 31 brothers says Peter, after quoting David from Psalm 16, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and that his tomb is with us to this day, being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would send one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw, meaning David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter's interpretation of Psalm 16 goes as follows. There are basically three progressive elements. The first element is the facts about David. How many facts? Three. He died, David. He's still dead. And he was a prophet. The second element is the truthfulness of God. God sworn with an oath to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne. What is the third element? And also Peter's conclusion is that David was prophesying about someone else, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this means that David himself, along with the apostle Peter understood biblical revelation which includes prophecy as progressive, but unified progressive, but unified unified in what unified in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're doing biblical theology right now. This means that old Testament prophets and new Testament apostles understood biblical and prophetic revelation as covenantal. That is to say, they saw Revelation as being Christocentric, centered on Christ. The Old Testament prophets like David and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they spoke prospectively. You understand what that means? Prospectively looking forward to Christ. While New Testament apostles spoke retrospectively looking back also to Christ. Why? Because the Old Testament prophets lived prior to the advent of Christ. So they spoke of the future. The only exception being, who is the only exception to that? John the Baptist. Yes. Yes. Very good. Very good job. John the Baptist, not John the Presbyterian. I love that. John the Baptist. He's the only exception, right? Because his ministry overlapped with the ministry of Jesus. While the new Testament apostles ministered after the life, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So they were always explaining and applying the events of the past. But in any case, they were all focused on one and the same person, Christ Jesus. They all saw themselves living within the flow of redemptive history. But let us see this in action. Do you have your Bibles with you? If you don't have a Bible, grab one of our pew Bibles and I will help you. I want, to see, I want to show you three verses in conjunction. We're going to see this in action, how it happens. First, go to Genesis chapter three, verse 15 in your pew Bibles. That is page number three. Genesis chapter three, verse 15 in here, God says to the serpent after the fall of man, what does he say? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her, what her offspring. And then he defines the offspring by saying he, the offspring, he is a reference to one man. Shall bruise your head, serpent, and you, serpent, shall bruise his heel. Genesis three, fifteen. Next, go in your Bibles to Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve through thirteen. In your pew Bibles, this is page 259. 259, two fifty-nine. Two fifty-nine. Second Samuel chapter seven, verses twelve through thirteen thirteen notice once again the same word being used. And here God makes a covenant with David by speaking these marvelous words. Verse twelve I will raise up David your what? Your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this question. What is that house? The church. What did Jesus say? I will build my church and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. Third, turn in your Bibles to the last book And the last chapter of the entire Bible, revelations 22 verse 16 in your pew Bibles. That is page 1042 revelation 22 verse 16. And in here we see the resolution to all of this. We see the glory of our savior in these words. I Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and what? Descendant, offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. Amazingly, here is Jesus saying essentially one thing. I am the one spoken of in Genesis. I am the promise seed of the woman. I am the king who came from David's body. The proof. Well, here is death could not hold me down. David is still dead. Death could not hold me down. In fact, it was not possible. John Owen remarks speaking of Genesis 3:15 and I quote all the covenants that God entered into with particular persons or with the whole congregation of believers were all of them declarations and confirmations of this first promise or of the way of salvation by mediation of his son becoming the seed of the woman to break the head of the serpent and to work out the deliverance of mankind In brief, all the covenants God made in the Old Testament were ultimately moving history forward to the new covenant, which was established by Christ's death and glorious resurrection. This is why Peter can take the words of David and apply them directly to the resurrected Christ, the Lord Jesus. At the end of the day, my brothers and sisters, David knew that history was not about him, but about the coming one, the Messiah, the Christ, the offspring of Eve, who is also the offspring of David, who is Jesus of Nazareth, a man. And through the spirit's revelation, David understood that his descendant would live forever. And here's Peter telling us with unquestionable finality that the descendant has come. He died. Yes, but death could not hold him. Therefore, the covenant with David has been fulfilled in the resurrected Christ, whose throne is forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, we have a king on the heavenly throne. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, and he will never die again. He will never die again. Therefore, the church will never die. It doesn't matter who is in power. The church will never die. And finally, the immediate application, the immediate application, verse 32, this Jesus got raised up and of that we are all witnesses. We are almost done. The entire apostolic ministry was about the fact that they saw the resurrected Lord Jesus. They witnessed his resurrection. In fact, if you go back to chapter one, verse 22, the requirement for the replacement of Judas was that he must become a witness with us to his resurrection. The apostolic ministry was about the risen Christ. The apostles saw themselves as messengers who were given the task of making the resurrection of Jesus known to the world. But they did so both verbally, verbally through proclamation and practically through righteous living. Why is this the case? Because this is what the resurrection of Jesus is. First, the the resurrection of Jesus is a message to be proclaimed with words. But second, the resurrection of Jesus is a reality that transforms Lives. It is a message to be proclaimed, but the resurrection of Jesus is also a reality that transforms lives. Therefore, the witnessing of which Peter is talking about involves the entirety of who they were. Let me prove this to you by asking you one simple question. Once again, what is the main event Peter is describing in his sermon? The coming of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit. That is what Peter is describing. Why then does does Peter insert a massive reference to the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of his explanation of Pentecost? The answer is simple yet profound. It is the Holy Spirit, the one who empowers God's people with Resurrection life. It is the spirit. The one who empowers God's people with resurrection life. The spirit is the one who applies the power of the resurrection of Jesus to us. 2000 years later. Therefore, listen to this. The church, the church is resurrection power on display. That's why you are. Christian. Husband, that's what you are. That's what I am. We are resurrection power on display. Why? Because by the Spirit, we are one with the resurrected Lord. And because of the Spirit, Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. So, I finish with this. Can we witness the physical resurrection of Jesus again? No. That only happened once during the apostolic era, which has been closed for thousands of years. We will never see the resurrection of Jesus. Once again, what we can witness, however, is the power of the resurrection active in the lives of believers as they live in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called thus When the scripture calls husbands to love their wives, wives to submit to their husbands, children to obey their parents, parents to instruct their children, believers to forgive one another, speak the truth to each other and fight the good fight. It is all upon the premise that we have been made alive together with Christ and that the spirit of God empowers us with resurrection life. This is why none of the imperatives, none of that is legalism. It is all based on the premise that if you are a believer, you have been made alive together with Christ and the spirit gives you resurrection life. Consequently, my friend, even the imperatives are rooted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he rose from the dead, the spirit has come. And we can live to the glory of Christ our Lord. He is our only hope. So let us to continue, let's continue to believe in him. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you once again for reminding us of the realities that can never change and will never change. As the world changes... Thank you, Father, for once again, bringing us here together to remember the truths, the realities that will never change, no matter what is taking place in our society. We thank you for Christ and the fact that he rose from the dead because he is indestructible life. For those of us who have believed in him, help us to continue to look to Christ in the midst of transitions, sorrows, joys, difficulties, whatever it may be, help us to continue to look to the one who never changes and who lives forever. And for those in this room who are not believers, who may be in a state of darkness, I pray, Lord, That by the power of the spirit, resurrection power, you will bring them to life and that you will let them see the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will see him for who he is, a sufficient, good, powerful, and willing savior who can forgive our sins and give us the promise of eternal life. So do what only you can do and continue to mold us into the image of your son. And these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Well, at the beginning of the Advent service, the candles were lit as a reminder that Christ has indeed come into the world, but also that he is the light of the world. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it is no coincidence that as Jesus spoke these words, he did so. Uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, where there was a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And there were four candelabras about 75 feet high there in the temple, and they were lit at night, and the light was so bright that it shone throughout the city during the night. And so it was in front of these that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. In John twelve forty-six, Jesus likewise said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness and so it's not just that we were in darkness but as the apostle paul wrote in ephesians 5:8, for at one time you were darkness and paul uses that metaphor of darkness to describe not just what we once did but the reality of who we once were as sons of disobedience and so apart from Christ, the, the Bible shows us that our best deeds are as darkness and contrast to the glory, to the holiness, to the beauty of God. And so not only did Christ come to die for our sins, but he also came to rescue us from the domain of darkness and to bring us in to the kingdom of light, making us alive together with his son. And so as we come now to the Lord's Supper, uh, we do so in part celebrating uh, who Christ is as a light of the world and that in him we too are light and that in him we can now walk in that light. And so during the song and after I pray, there will be ushers at the back that will direct you row by row uh, to come to the front to get the bread and the juice. You'll notice that the elements are in two cups into one, the juice on top. And the bread and the cup underneath so you can get that as you come forward. And each of you are invited to partake in the Lord's Supper, assuming that you are indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your Savior and Lord. And yet, let me remind us of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which says that if we take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, then we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. And so this morning, if you need to be reconciled with God or if you know you have sinned against somebody else and need to be reconciled unto that person, I would encourage you to to use this time instead to prayerfully ask that the Lord would examine your heart and that he would lead you in the way everlasting.